Let's pray. Father, we come once more before your throne. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us as we uh, dive into this passage this morning. Lord, would you help us to behold wonderful things in this extraordinary text? And we pray, Lord, that you would do this for your glory and for our good. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me back to the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we come uh, to a new chapter, chapter 5. It's really one of the most fascinating, bizarre, and compelling events in the life of our Lord. It's the transformation of a maniac into a missionary. As we'll see, the details in this story are strange for sure, uh, but the basic elements of the story have played out over and over again throughout history and continue to play out even today. Uh, Because at its core, you you get to the very heart of the story, uh, this is a a story about transformation. Uh, It's about the transformation of the most unlikely man into an evangelist and into a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And I think we all need passages like this because if you're like me, there are people in your life who seem to be so far beyond the pale of forgiveness and transformation that when we look at them, we've tried so hard and for so long and we're tempted to lose hope that they could ever change. Maybe it's a spouse who you think will never change. Maybe it's an adult child who's enslaved to sin. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a sibling. Whoever it is, from your vantage point, these, this person or these people seem so enslaved to sin that freedom and transformation seem to be beyond reach for them. And maybe you're here this morning. And, and that's you. Uh, you're here and your thought is, I have been so bad for so long that surely uh, there is no hope for me left. And maybe the chains of your sin seem to be so strong that tra- transformation uh, seems impossible. And that's a, a, a very sad place to be. And it's actually where the man that we encounter in our text this morning found himself, hopelessly enslaved to sin. And everyone around him who saw him thought the same thing. Here is a hopeless case. Here is a man who will never change. Here is a man who is a lost cause. And then Jesus showed up. And all of a sudden, hope came with him. And in a moment, Everyone present on the beach that day saw the power of Christ demonstrated. That there are really no chains, there's no enslavement so strong that Jesus Christ can't undo it. And everyone here in Mark 5 left this scene with absolute certainty that there is no such thing as a hopeless case. And more really than that, they saw the power 
of Christ on display. That His power to effect uh, a transformation that was utterly radical and extraordinary. And they also saw what every person who senses a hopelessness about their case needs to see. And that's this. Not only does Jesus have power to effect transformation, but Jesus is ruled by a mercy and a compassion and a tenderness that compels Him to the most hopeless sinners and compels Him to do for them what they could not do for themselves and that no one else could do for them. And so at one level, this is a, a passage that, is, that teaches us that if Jesus could change the maniac from Gadara, He can change you. He can change any of us. That's one lesson. But the main lesson of this parable is not about, or this story rather, it's not a parable, this is a story. It's an event in the life of the Lord. And the main, le- main lesson here is not about the maniac who becomes a missionary. It's actually about the power and the mercy of Jesus. And the transformation of this man becomes the stage upon which those two glorious attributes of our Lord are showcased. Mercy and power. The stage upon which mercy and power are demonstrated for us is the life of this man. And that's what we want to look at this morning. And because this is a long passage, and you're going to have to listen really fast, um, and I'm going to have to talk fast, and it's a long passage, I don't want you to have to stand and, 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 um, with me as I read it. So I want you to sit with me, but I do want you to turn to Mark 5. And we're going to read, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read all 20 verses together. Okay, so I'm being merciful, trying to imitate Jesus here. Blessed are the merciful. All right, so let's start reading in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him any more, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broke in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine, so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. 
The herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Amen. That's those last two verses, verses 19 and 20, that really capture the point of the entire passage. Jesus says to this man, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. That's power. And how he had mercy on you. And he went and began to proclaim what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. So whatever you get from this bizarre account, you need to get the power and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And this man's life as I mentioned, becomes the stage upon which these attributes are displayed. And what I want to do with you this morning is look at this long story in three acts, sort of like a play. And as we work through each act, we'll be observing the transformation of the demoniac. But the ultimate point is for us to go through the details over and over again, to go through those details and to marvel at the mercy and the power of our Lord. That's the target. So let's begin with Act 1, which spans verses 1 to 5, and we'll call the first act, A Man Hopelessly Enslaved. A man who was hopelessly enslaved. And verse 1 sort of sets the stage for us. And they, Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. Now, we know this was not a smooth passage. We spent time last week looking at uh, the turbulent journey they had from Capernaum to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. But here they are. They finally make it through the storm and finally come to the other side. And you have to imagine, uh, after an episode uh, like the storm they came through, you have to imagine that they were ready to get their feet on some solid ground. They just have no idea what when they get their feet on that solid ground, what's coming for them. And so here they are, they come to the other side of the lake, of the sea, and they come into what's called the country of the Gerasenes, which is a region on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, southeast of Capernaum. And probably it was closest to a small village called Gersa, which is where the name Gerasene comes from. It's about six miles southeast of Capernaum. Now, in Matthew's parallel account, he calls this region the country of the Gadarenes. And that's usually how we refer to this man, the Gadarene, or the Gadarene demoniac. Uh, 
And the difference is that Matthew was referring to a larger area here that would have extended six miles south of the Sea of Galilee down into a town called Gadara. And Gadara was the largest city in the region. And so when you referred to the larger area that encompassed the whole east side, essentially, of the Sea of Galilee, you would refer to it as the country of the Gadarenes. And actually, you could zoom out even further and and refer to this whole region on the east side of Galilee and down south as the Decapolis, which is what it's referred to in verse 20. The Decapolis was just a, a coalition of ten cities. And so, zooming out then, big picture, you have the Decapolis, zooming in a little bit, the country of the Gadarenes, and zooming in an even smaller region was the region or the country of the Gerasenes. And here they are, the disciples have come across, and they come in uh, onto the shore where their storm-tossed boat finally lands, and rather than the respite they were probably expecting, expecting to receive, uh, which is what we all expect when we're in trial, right? We're just looking for the corner, you know, to turn the corner. Okay, relief is coming just right around the corner. All right, next week will be easier. I say this all the time. Savannah tells me, you, you always say that. I, she also tells me that I'm a, an optimist, you know, I'm just a, um, how does she say it? Uh, a hopeless optimist almost. And I'm always looking for the positive. Next week's going to be better. Next week's going to be better. Next week's going to be better. We're always looking for that turn. And certainly the disciples here, whew, we just came through that storm, now we're on land, and they get a surprise. Verse 2, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Now this is a man who is hopelessly enslaved to the devil. And his situation is so bad that Mark spends four verses uh, describing his misery. He's this lunatic. He's a maniac. The disciples are looking for some rest. The maniac comes down the the side of the mountain, and he charges in on Jesus. But Mark wants us to know, first, the misery of this man. In verse 2, he tells us that he's possessed by an unclean spirit, uh, which is to say that he's demon-possessed. This is Mark's way of referring to demonic possession. Demons are fallen angels. And and Mark calls them unclean spirits, which is to say they're spirits who are ceremonially defiled and therefore unable to relate appropriately to God. They're unclean. And notice that Mark initially calls or lists this as a singular spirit. A man from the tombs with an unclean spirit singular. And most likely, this is pointing to the fact that the people around, the disciples as well, had no idea about the extent of the possession that this man was under. And they recognized, everyone recognized. I mean, you see a lunatic, you see a maniac like this, you immediately know uh, there is something wrong with this individual. So they recognize that he's possessed by an evil power, but they had no idea that behind this man was an entire host of demons. And the force of their influence is what's so staggering. Now look at verse 3. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough 
to subdue him. So apparently he, he had lived in the town before. Maybe it was Gersa was the town. His family was likely still there because in verse 19 he sends them back to his family. And, and most likely they were the ones who had tried to help him, to sort of rehabilitate him. But there was nothing they could do to help him. He was like a wild animal. That's the language here. It's like a wild beast. Actually, he was worse than that. You can chain up a tiger. You can chain up a tiger and expect that he's not going to shatter the chains. But here is a man with such power that he's able to tear chains apart. And no matter how often they try to help him and get him under control, all their efforts failed because verse 4, the end of verse 4, no one was strong enough to subdue him. I mentioned that this is the language of taming wild animals. That word subdue there is used of subjugating wild game. When it came to this demoniac, no one had the capacity to tame him, to domesticate him. He really was a hopeless cause. No one strong enough to get him in line. So what do you do with a guy like this? Well, you consign him to life in the graveyard, which is where he lived. Out in the hills, in the tombs, which were essentially caves in the low rocky mountains adjacent to the Sea of Galilee. Miserable, miserable condition. Verse 5 actually further details how miserable his situation is. Look at verse 5. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains. Night and day. Never any rest for this man. He spent his nights crying out with these loud, unintelligible cries. We would call it a shriek. It's an unearthly sort of scream, full of emotion and passion, but no words. Trying somehow to voice his misery. And he did it night and day in the tombs and on the mountains. And verse 5 further states, that he would gash himself with stones, probably some sort of flint that he would have sharpened for that very purpose, uh, to cut and lacerate himself. All right, so here he is, in his miserable state, wandering through the graves and hills, screaming all day, screaming all night, cutting himself with stones, covered in blood, such a terror to himself and such a terror to the entire region. The, gospel, the parallel accounts say that people would bypass the whole region just to avoid this man. And by all appearances, here is an individual without hope and without God in this world. And Mark actually emphasizes this in a number of ways with the description he's already given, but uh, he does it in a couple of other ways that are a little more discreet. Number one, this is an unclean spirit. Not in the sense that it's a dirty spirit, but unclean in the sense that this spirit was making this individual ceremonially unclean so that just by the nature of the spirits indwelling him, he was cut off from access to God. It was ceremonially unclean. Not only that, he's living in the tombs. That itself would have rendered him ceremonially unclean before the Lord, Numbers 19.11. 
On top of that, he's living in the Decapolis, which is a Gentile region, which itself would have rendered him unclean. And on top of that, he's dwelling in an area on the hills where pigs are being raised, which was another factor that would have rendered this man unclean and entirely cut off from God. You get the point. I mean, this is redundant over and over, and Mark is just elaborating on the hopeless state of this man. It's, it's almost in every way conceivable. This man is hopeless. And that's where Act 1 ends. But now we come to Act 2, where this hopelessly enslaved man is powerfully delivered. Look at verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance... He ran up and bowed down before him. Now Matthew tells us as well that there were two demon-possessed men that charged Jesus from the mountainside. But what Mark does here is that he zeroes in on the most fearsome of the two. And the man that was described in verses 2 to 5. So Mark zeroes in on this individual, this one man by the name of Legion. So here he comes, charging down the mountainside, out of the tombs. I mean, that itself is enough for the disciples to shirk back, right? Here's a man, we see the pigs, we see the tombs. All of that, would, his presence with them would render them ceremonially unclean. So they're already standoffish. And they see their Lord holding his ground. The man runs and races towards Jesus. And the initial sense, especially reading the parallel accounts, is that this man is coming to challenge Jesus and to terrify Him, just as He's been doing to everyone else in the region for however long. But at some point in His charge, He recognizes that this man on the beach is no ordinary figure. There's something different about this guy. And so he runs up, and rather than attacking him, he bows down before Jesus. Not as an expression of worship. He's not worshiping Jesus. This is bowing out of the terrifying recognition that the man in front of him is the Lord of heaven and earth, the judge of men and of angels. So he falls down on his face and he cries out with a loud voice saying, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. It's a Hebrew figure of speech essentially saying, Why are you bothering us? We're we're over here on the east side of Galilee. Just let us alone. Why are you bothering us? There's agitation. I implore you by God, do not torment me. Instantly, this demonic power knows exactly who they're dealing with. They recognize Jesus to be and confess Him to be the eternal Son of God, which we see this over and over again. The demons get who Jesus is, but who doesn't? The Pharisees, the scribes, everyone else. The demons are the only ones who sort of respond to Jesus appropriately. They bow down to Him. They confess Him to be who He is. And they understand. I mean, the language is clear. I implore you by God, do not torment me. They know what's coming for them. They understand 
that Jesus has cosmic authority and power over them, and they're terrified at what Jesus might do to them. And we saw the same thing if you flip back to Mark 1. You remember Mark 1 and verse 24, when Jesus was in the synagogue and all of a sudden a man uh, stands up and makes uh, the, the demon rather speaks through this man and he cries out and he says, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's a panicked fright. I mean, this is fear, panic, frenzy, a recognition that the man in front of them has the power to consign them to eternal judgment. In fact, they know this is coming for them. The devil knows, like Satan, they know that their ultimate fate is the bottomless pit. They get that. They understand that their war will be lost. They understand that judgment is coming for them. And essentially what they're doing is asking for an extension. Don't torment us. If you look at the parallel account, uh, they say, have you come to torment us before the time? And the idea is, the final judgment's not yet here. This is a little early. You showed up a little too early, Jesus, to destroy us. Now remember that demons are fallen angels. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. They know Jesus. They know Him. And so, without even saying a word, Jesus' presence renders them mute and still. They come down, fall down, and then they finally voice their torment and terror, and they beg for mercy. That's without a word bowing at his feet in full submission. Now, think about this. In connection to how Mark has just described this demoniac. Without a word now, Jesus has already done more to get this maniac under control than an entire city could do. The presence of Jesus alone rests the maniac into submission. And here he is, formerly, no one could bind him And all Jesus does is walk up, and down he falls. But the demonic powers are actually still at work, and they're exercising their tyranny, using this man's vocal cords to make an appeal to Jesus. And they're groveling before the king, trying to buy themselves a little more time before their inevitable fate. And Jesus then looks at the demoniac and asks him, verse 9, what is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. The Greek term legion here is from the Latin legio, which referred to the largest troop unit in the Roman army. Now, who's in charge during the first century? And yeah, the Romans. The Romans are in charge here. This man says, my name is Legion, largest troop unit in the Roman army, nearly 6,000 soldiers. And just the use of that name Legion indicates the militant facet of the demon's agenda. And the point was clear. Inside of this man was a demonic force equal to the number and the power 
of a Roman legion. One man and 5,600 Roman soldiers, literal legion. No chance. No wonder he's out of control. No wonder he's breaking chains. No wonder he cannot be subdued. But despite the might of legion, here he is, bowed down and groveling at the feet of Jesus. It's amazing. In verse 10, the spokesman for legion begins to make an additional plea. Don't torment me, they say. But then they also ask, don't send us out of the country. Apparently they had a monopoly in the area and didn't want to lose any ground that they had gained. So they're assuming at this point that Jesus is not going to send them to the abyss just yet since the final judgment hasn't arrived. And they're thinking, you know, we've got to be somewhere, Jesus. So why not here? This is an unclean area. You guys don't like it over here. Just leave us over here in the tombs on the mountainside and we'll be just fine. So then in verse 12... They start to beg Jesus not to send them out of the country, but to send them into a herd of pigs that were grazing nearby. Pigs are unclean animals to the Jew. Surely Jesus is going to be okay with that. That was a really strange request, right? I've been trying to wrestle with this all week. What is he talking about? Why pigs? What's going on? Well, I don't have a great answer for you. I'm sorry. Um... Remember, this is about the power and the mercy of Jesus. Don't get lost in the details. It's a strange, strange request. But I think my best answer to what's going on here is they are simply looking for a way to perpetuate evil. That's all they want. They know their end has arrived. And all they want to do is to destroy something more. That's their delight. This is the power and the M.O., of devil and the, the devil and his minions is to steal, kill, and destroy. This is, this is what they live for, to go against the kingdom of God. And anything they can do to terrorize and perpetuate evil, they want to do. So uh, they want to just destroy these pigs. They want to destroy more things before they go out. And what's the most shocking is not so much the pigs, actually, to me. What is the most shocking is verse 13. Jesus gave them permission. That baffles me. Jesus granted Legion's request. Now, there is no doubt that Jesus could have sent them into the abyss immediately. Even the demons had already acknowledged that Jesus could do this. They're just trying to delay But Jesus doesn't immediately throw them into the abyss. He doesn't. And it's not because he's compromising. This is not a compromise, and this is not about Jesus' mercy to the demons. That's not what this is about. I think what this is about, the reason Jesus permits their request, is so that everyone can see the destructive power of this demonic force. Now remember, everyone who came up, Mark refers to the demon in the singular. He's a demon-possessed man. No one has an idea that there's a legion of demons behind this guy. How do you demonstrate that to everyone? Well, one way is, here's a herd of pigs. Let me show you 
They requested, let me show you the destructive power that is operative in this individual. You see it on him. You see the scars. You see his misery. But let me just show you an object lesson of the destructive power of this demonic horde. And so Jesus says, sure, you can do that. Verse 13, he, he, or verse 8 rather, he, drives, he demands the demons to come out. Then verse 13, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. 2,000. Some people say, well, that means there were only 2,000 demons in the man. No, clearly there's 5,600, literally, uh, is the reference to legion in the one man. So there are more demons than one can inhabit a man, and more demons than one can inhabit a pig. And so they race down the steep embankment. 2,000 pigs on the hillside stampede towards the Sea of Galilee, and hundred by hundred they hurl themselves over the embankment and plunge into the sea. Now, it's hard for us to picture that, uh, but just try to. I mean, imagine what it would have been like to be a herdsman on the hillside that day. I mean, you already have a pretty rough job, right? You're herding pigs. That's, you know, there's not a long line of you know, people signed up to be a swineherd. And not only that, you're herding pigs in like uh, a graveyard, essentially. And not only that, you're herding pigs in a graveyard inhabited by a maniac. This is not a, a, you know, an ideal job for anyone. So these guys are most likely, you can sort of imagine, that they're carrying out their duties on the side of the hill with some trepidation already. And they're like, you know, they're, they're just ready to jump you know, at the sound of a, you know, a clap. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, all 2,000 of their pigs, a fortune, race down the side of the mountain, squealing, shrieking, I don't know if you've ever heard a pig shriek or squeal. I mean, there's a reason that we use it as a metaphor. Right? It's terrible. And so all of a sudden, 2,000 of these pigs storm down the side of the mountain into the water. It had been terrifying. So in verse 14, uh, they do what probably any of us would do. They run. They run away and report it and to the countryside, to the city, what has happened. They're probably trying to get some help, I would think, too. They just lost a fortune. And for the disciples who were standing there with Jesus and the domesticated demoniac at this point, they would have seen that Jesus possessed absolute power. Not only over storms, not only over the demon in the synagogue, but over all the hosts of hell. And this maniac who had come storming down the hillside to terrorize Jesus in an instant, bows before him, declares him to be the Son of God, groveling at his feet, begging for mercy. And then the disciples find out that this is not just one demon, this is a legion. And Jesus with his presence, has subdued them and subjugated them. And then with a word, he sends them to the abyss. I mean, he doesn't even break a sweat. This is not even hard for him. 
He's perfectly calm, just like he was in the sea. In the boat asleep. Storm raging, chaos all around. He's sleeping. Here he's on the, the shore, chaos all around. He's calm. And he calms the chaos in this guy's life as well. And the disciples see that Jesus not only possesses sovereign power over nature, but he also possesses absolute power over the chaos of hell. Now, there, we just need to realize here, there's no cosmic struggle. This is no epic battle that's sort of playing out here. Uh, this is not a push and pull between heaven and hell, where sometimes Satan wins, and sometimes God wins, and this is cosmic battle, we're just sort of struggling to come out on top. Really, that idea is foreign to Scripture. The struggle between heaven and hell is not a struggle between two equal powers. At full strength, at full strength, the powers of hell are nothing to the Lord. Nothing. Nothing at all. And this story just sort of is a microcosm of that reality. There's not a battle here. Jesus just shows up, and all of a sudden everything's okay. And you look to the end, in the book of Revelation, battles, chaos all around, and Jesus just shows up. And all of a sudden, everything is okay. And that's the way that Jesus is. He shows up, and he makes everything right. Now that's the end of Act 2. Jesus, with the effect of his presence and the power of his command, frees this pitiful man from the tyranny of a demonic force far greater, far more powerful than anyone could have imagined. And at this point, everyone is virtually terrified. Uh, the disciples, you can imagine, are terrified. Uh, the people are terrified. The maniac, he's just sitting at Jesus' feet. And Jesus is the only one that's sort of got presence of mind at this point. And the herdsmen, of course, they had run off, scared, and reported what had happened in the city. But very quickly, the people began showing up to see what had happened. This is kind of news, kind of event you don't want to miss. Uh, so they get the report, and that brings us to Act 3 of the drama. Act 3, we'll call it a man mercifully transformed. A man mercifully transformed. Look with me at the second half of verse 14. As the herdsmen have gone back into the city to report the news, the people then came to see what it was that had happened. And Matthew says, the whole city essentially showed up to see what was going on out here. Not meaning every single person, of course, but that so many people came out that it looked as if the entire town was present. Now you have to remember, too, I mean, they're like, you know, in uh, earshot of everything. They can see the, the Sea of Galilee, most likely. Uh, and they had just, you know, been part of a terrible storm, They'd seen it sort of unfolding on the sea, they would have saw that, and then all of a sudden it's gone. So that's a strange wind blowing in the area. Uh, they had heard the, about the demoniac, you know, they'd heard the pigs squealing, they had heard all this happening, and so they're already, you know, curious, and then the report goes back to them, they come out, everyone comes out to see, and they're astonished, astonished, utterly astonished, because they see the demoniac, the same man who had terrorized them, their town, for so long, sitting in this strange position. So unusual. What is he doing? Verse 15. 
They came to see. They came to Jesus rather and observed the man who had been de- uh, demon possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. I love that. How strange! How strange for this man, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. See the emphasis there. Here's the man who had terrified them for so long. The same man they'd bound with chains and shackles to try to subdue him. Uh, Perhaps even getting like Roman military power. Everything they can do to get this man subjugated. And I didn't tell you that he was also running around without clothes on. I mean, this this guy is a total lunatic. And now, here he is. Sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. I talk about transformation. It's such a dramatic transformation that the people show up and they're just forced to stare. They're just forced to stare at Jesus, to stare at this man. That's what the word observe means here in verse 15. It's more than just seeing him. It means to observe with continuity and attention, often with the implication that what is being observed is highly unusual. Now, it's not unusual to see people clothed, and in their right mind. But it was for this man. They knew him. And so picture this. They're coming out. They surround Jesus and the demoniac. And no one says anything. A crowds of people. They just observe this former maniac. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Fully clothed. Probably with clothes given to him by the disciples. And he's talking with Jesus. In his right mind. No doubt Jesus is telling him the gospel, explaining to him how this power and this mercy that I just exercised over this legion of demons is nothing compared to what I'm doing for you, for your salvation. The sight of this terrifies the people. End of verse 15. They're terrified. They're in shock at what they see, and the shock actually has more to do with Jesus, I think, than with the man. And I say that because they understand that whoever was able to subjugate this demoniac must possess an incredible power. In verse 16, the witnesses have given full report to the people, and they're all scared. They're terrified. It's the same experience, remember, that the disciples had just had in Mark 4, verse 41, where they became very much afraid when they realize that they're in the boat with their Creator. And they're terrified. Because they realize, all of a sudden, they're in the presence of a power far greater than anything they've ever witnessed. And so too, these people that have gathered to look at the man and look at Jesus. And tragically though, rather than bowing to Jesus and hailing Him as Lord and Savior, what do they do? Verse 17, and they began to implore him to do what? To leave their region. The motive for their request is fear. Now, some people argue that it's well because they don't want Jesus to kill any more of their pigs. They just lost a fortune. But that's not what you get in the passage. In the passage, the emphasis on the passage is fear, fear, fear. They are terrified. This is the response when you're in the presence of God. You realize your own sin 
You realize uh, that you are far worse than you ever thought you were when you look at yourself in comparison to the Holy One of Israel. And here they are. They witness Jesus. They see Jesus. And they're motivated by fear. And they ask Jesus, actually they beg Him to leave. It's an indication of their depravity. This is a Gentile region. They're not interested in Jesus and the Gospel. It underscores their cold-heartedness. And all of that pushes them to reject Jesus and call on Him to leave immediately. Get out of here. We don't want your type here. And it's amazing. It really is amazing. Just as Jesus had granted the request of the demons, so now He graciously grants the request of these hard-hearted Gentiles. They look in the face of unquestionable power and divinity, and they say, get out of here. We would rather be with the demons. So Jesus gives them what they want. He answers their prayer, answers their request, as it were. And so he starts to get back into the boat and to head to the other side. But as he's getting into the boat, there's one more request that's put in to Jesus. And it's from the man who had been radically transformed. Look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. It's a pitiful scene, really. It's, it's pitiful. This man had been ter- tyrannized rather, by the devil for so long. And he would, have, of course, had the scars. Remember, he's cutting himself. It's a miserable situation. He had the scars to prove his prior misery. He would have had all the broken relationships that come with a life lived enslaved to sin. You know that. And the last thing that he wanted was to be separated from Jesus. All he wanted to do was to stay with Jesus. He didn't want to go back to this place full of terrible memories, full of terrible broken relationships, full of a terrible reputation. I mean, marked by a terrible reputation. The last thing he wants is to go back there. All he wants is what every sinner saved wants. I just want to be with Jesus. Let me just be with you, Jesus. Jesus, take me with you. So he begs him. He implores him. And this is the third time we've seen this language. The demons implored or begged Jesus to send them into the pigs. The crowds implored or begged Jesus to leave. And now this man is, who's been transformed, converted, is begging and imploring Jesus to bring him along. Jesus had permitted the request of the demons. He was in the process of granting the request of the unbelieving townspeople. But he looks at this man and he denies him. He denies him. Yes to the demons. Yes to the cold-hearted pagans. No to my precious child. Shocking. Why? Why does Jesus say no to his children? You've asked it. Just take it away, Lord. Remove the pain. Save them. Act. No. Jesus says no to a perfectly legitimate request. 
Jesus looks at him and says, no, that's not, that's not going to happen. And the reason we see in verse 19, Jesus had a larger, a larger mission for this man that transcended all that he thought he needed and all that he thought he knew. All he wanted to do was be with Jesus. That's all he wanted. He has no idea what the divine mind is, has orchestrated for him. He has no idea. He has no idea that he is about to be tasked as the first missionary to the Gentiles in the Gospel of Mark. He has no idea about the magnitude of his influence. He has no idea that God has a plan that far surpasses anything that he could imagine. And remember, Jesus has left Capernaum to come all the way to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. For what? Why is he here? He's got one mission. And it's this maniac. (laughs) This man. So there's no question about the love and the care of Jesus for this man. Jesus had come to this very place for this purpose. And he says no because he has a plan for this man. Verse 19. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Call of every Christian. Go to your people. Report what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. When's the last time you thought about that? When's the last time you stopped to consider what great things the Lord has done for you? When's the last time you stopped to reflect on that? When is the last time you stopped to just take in the mercies of God to you? If you're not aware of those, how are you proclaiming them to other people? This man was given a mission. Go to your people, report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. That's your mission. Jesus says to him, no, you can't come with me. Go home to your people, your household, your family. It's most likely what he means here. And give them the report about what has happened to you. Tell them, number one, what the Lord has done for you. Tell them about my power over the demonic hosts that had enslaved you for so long. Tell them about the ease in which I transferred you from the tyranny of the devil into the kingdom of light. Tell them how I broke the chains in your life. Tell them how your life became a theater to demonstrate my incredible power. That's the first thing. Tell them about the transformation. And then tell them about the great mercy you have received. Tell them all how I didn't just look at you and cast you aside as a hopeless case. 
Tell them how I left Capernaum to come straight here for you. Tell them how I showcased my concerns and love for you by doing for you what no one else could have ever done for you. And tell them how your life is now a platform to demonstrate my mercy. And tell them that my mercy extends to them as well if they will bow the knee to me. That's the mission this man is given. And look how this man responds in verse 20. It's amazing to me. He doesn't complain because he didn't get his way. How in the world do you answer the demon's request, these pagans' request, but you don't answer mine? He doesn't do that. He doesn't complain. He doesn't mope. He doesn't spend his time moaning about what he doesn't have. He doesn't kick against the Lord's new mission for him. He does what every transformed person does. He submits to Jesus and he obeys Jesus even if it's not exactly what he wanted to do. Verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was Amazed. Now, you thought earlier I was just talking about geography, and you're like, why in the world is he talking about geography? Who cares about Decapolis, Gadarene, Gerasene? Well, here's the point. If you go out, he's a Gerasene, the Gadarenes, the Decapolis. Where did this man go? He didn't stay in his little village. He goes out in the Decapolis, all of this vast network of pagan cities, and he proclaims the mercy and the power of of Christ to transform sinners. My question though is, how was he able to do this? How was he able to obey God in this way, even when he didn't get his way? It was a right request, a proper request. How does a man so transformed in this way make his request to Jesus, Jesus say no, and then he just goes on his way and does what he's called to do? How does that happen? Well, I'll tell you how it happens. This man obeys, even though he didn't get what he wanted, because he understands exactly what he was before his conversion. He understands it. He gets it. I mean, this is so fresh to him. He was just now naked in the tombs, possessed by a legion of demons. Now, all of a sudden, he asks the Lord for a request. The Lord says no. And so he says, okay, I'm going to keep going, because I understand what I would be had not Jesus intervened. He, he also, I think, understands exactly what he deserves. He understands that he actually deserves to still be on the hillside, in the graves, in the tombs. And he understands that there's only one reason he's not still out of his mind and enslaved to the powers of hell. And that reason, of course, is Jesus Christ. And in this moment, this man understands that he owes everything to Jesus and Jesus owes him nothing. Jesus has already given it all. And so he doesn't flinch at getting his request denied because he understands the dynamic here. You don't come to Jesus and make demands. You come to Jesus and bow down. You make your request known, sure. But when he says no, you say yes, sir, and you get to work. And that's what this man does. And I just want to make a point about this really quickly. If you find yourself, just think about your life. 
If you find yourself complaining and moaning about your circumstances all the time, maybe you you don't have the godly husband or wife that you would like, you don't have the children, perfectly trained children, you don't have the job that makes X amount of dollars, if you find yourself steadily fixed on what you don't have and God's no to you, I can guarantee you that you have lost sight of what you were before Christ intervened in your life. People that moan and complain about their circumstances are people who have forgotten how merciful God has been to them. They've forgotten what they deserve. When you forget what you deserve, then you grow, this sense of entitlement grows in you. And entitlement breeds discontentment. You lose sight of the mercy of God. You feel entitled. God must give me X. I deserve X. And so you complain against the Lord. And if the Lord calls you to go back to Decapolis, you say, sure, I'll go. And you moan around, mope around, drag your feet. But if the freshness of your conversion was before you, if you go back to the moment you understood the gospel for the first time, and then you couple that with God's new directive to you, whether that's a mission you don't want, whether that's a job you didn't want to have, if you remember what God has done for you, friend, that is what compels you through the nose of God to do the work He's given you to do. If you fail to lay hold of the height and depth and breadth of God's love and His mercy to you at your conversion, you will be someone marked by discontentment. But people that understand the depths of their own depravity and the reality of what God owes them, which of course is an eternity in hell. People that understand that and then they see what God has actually given them in their conversion, their salvation, grace, in exchange for grace, pardon of their sins, and life eternal. Those are the people who are the most loyal and faithful to Jesus. Because they understand that anything above an eternity in hell is a gift from God, designed by Him to be a theater upon which His power and His mercy are propagated to a pagan world. And really, for eternity. The angels will marvel and will marvel that God was so gracious to people like you and I. I'm not saying don't take your problems to God. Do it. He makes His request known. Jesus, can I come with you? But once you drop off that request, you leave it there. You leave it with Him. You can make it known again, sure. But you leave it there, and then you get your eyes on what God has actually given you. And you rejoice that every good and perfect gift has come to you from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow or turning due to change. And the greatest gift that you have received, if you are the Lord's, is the gift of being transferred from the dominion of the devil into the kingdom of light. You keep that before your eyes. Uh, you can sing through all the no's of heaven. 
that. You can press on, even when you don't get your request answered. Because you know, I deserve an eternity in hell. And that pales in comparison to the pain I currently feel. I don't want to minimize your pain. I know some of you are suffering and struggling immensely, and so I'm not trying to do that. But what I do want to do is underscore the, the, the key here with this man. He received the no gladly and with joy because he understood what had just happened to him. And when you get your eyes on the love of God for you, in spite of your suffering, in spite of your struggle, struggle, the knowledge of that love compels you to do just what the man in our text did. He took up his cross. I made my request known. Jesus said, no. Okay, I don't live for myself anyway. I have died. Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Mark 8, 34. I've taken up my cross. I'm denying myself. I don't live for myself any longer. So Jesus' no to me is totally fine. So I take up my cross. I deny myself. And I live completely and entirely upon the Lord, knowing that He does not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. He saved me. How will He not also with me get with Him give me all good things? He's not withholding good from me. And that's the fear, isn't it? The no is interpreted as God's withholding from me. God's withholding good from me. And what we do when the no comes is we say, no, 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 no. God would never withhold good. There must be something greater, something more transcendent for me than I even realize. And I'm just going to trust Him and I'm going to plod along here and be faithful. This man understood that Jesus owed him nothing, but that he owed Jesus everything. And that's really the key. When you get that, you'll offer your greatest possession, which is your life, in service to the King. And really, that's the very beginning of the Christian life. Taking up your cross and living for the King. And so here's this man, totally transformed from maniac to missionary. He receives his orders from the King, and he doesn't tarry at all. Immediately, verse 20, he goes, proclaims what Jesus told him to do, the mercy and the power of God, and everyone is amazed. And they're amazed. Why? Well, they're amazed at his transformation, that's sure, but even more so, they're amazed at the power of Christ that has transformed this maniac into a missionary. If he can do that for this man, friend, let us never say that anyone is beyond the hope of gospel transformation. Right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder that your gospel is invincible and it never fails. You get your men and women and children and you transform them. Help us, Lord, to be those who reflect the message, proclaim your power, proclaim your mercy. And Lord, we do pray if there is anyone here this morning enchained to their sin, that you would set them free. And Father, that you would do so for your own glory. Amen.